Good morning. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here once again. My name is Chad Reynolds. I'm the pastor at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Clennon. No T in that pronouncement or pronunciation. Um, Clennon, South Carolina. Uh, for what it's worth, I was uh, a worshiper here from sometime in 1995 through 97 when my wife and I were, um, we weren't married yet, but when we were attending Erskine and um, and then uh, when we were in the earliest days of our, our marriage and in the latter part of 1997 before we uh, moved elsewhere. But uh, I have fond memories of being in these pews and, and worshiping the Lord together with maybe even some of you. I, I don't know how many were here from 95 to 97, but it was, uh, it was a good season of, of the Lord uh, drawing me closer to Him. So I'm thankful for that. Um, if you would... Let's look at Daniel chapter 3 this morning. Uh, I've been preaching through this first half of Daniel back at Westminster. And chapter 3 is probably a fairly familiar uh, passage and one of the familiar narratives for many people. Even, even the youngest of us, uh, is, this is going to be likely a story that we've heard and, and are familiar with to some extent. Uh, but uh, hopefully there will be, by the Spirit's leading, fresh uh, sanctification and knowledge to come, even for those who are most familiar with it. I'll be reading um, not the entire chapter, but pretty close to it. I'll read verses 1 through 7 and then jump down to 14 and read through the end. This is the word of the Lord. Let's give attention to it in our minds and hearts. The scripture reads, King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits, and its breadth six cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all of the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples and nations and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the people heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshiped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. We'll skip down to 14, but know this, there were three men who did not bow down, and that then becomes an issue for them before Nebuchadnezzar. In verse 14 we read, Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, to them, that is to Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego. 
Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. He answered and said, But I see four men unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning, fiery furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. And then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire. And the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore I make a decree... Any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses laid in ruins. For there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. This is the word of the Lord. May his people find blessing in it. If you would, pray with me and let's ask God to that end. Father, we do praise you. We thank you for all your many blessings. We pray that this 
portion of your word as I've read it here today and will seek to now preach it would be one that we receive with gladness in our minds and hearts, one that we not only receive in the present, but would seek to, by your Spirit's leading, then go forth to live. That it would encourage us where we need encouragement, exhort us where there is need for exhortation, and that, Father, it would be a means by which, in living it out, others would see the glory of your name and the name of your Son, Jesus. They would hear and know the good news because of the transformation you continue to work in our lives by your Spirit and through your Word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I mentioned that I uh, went to church here, worshipped here back in the mid to late 90s. And just so you know, if I mention like a book or a, a movie, that's not necessarily an endorsement, and that's an important point in what I'm getting ready to say. But around that same time, 1995-ish, there was a movie. We didn't have a lot to do back in 1995, by the way, kids. So, and especially in due west, South Carolina. So we would get in a car, we would drive to, they had this thing um, on the corner of 25 and 72 back then called Blockbuster Video. You may not know what that is, some of you. I think there's a Netflix documentary about them. We would come and get a video, and there'd be a big wall of, of the newest movies, and then there'd be the other movies. Well, a big group of us got a movie one time called Dumb and Dumber. And there's a scene, I don't think I've ever seen it again, but there's a scene that sticks out in my head, probably because I've heard it quoted, I don't know, a thousand and one times since 1995. And it's near the end of the movie, and Dumber, from Dumb and Dumber, I don't know his real name, but Dummer is trying to get the girl in the movie, the woman, to tell him whether or not she would want to be his girlfriend. And he's very awkward in how he approaches this, as many of us are when we've put ourselves out there uh, with the fairer sex. And so he's, he's stumbling for his words, and he finally just comes out and says, just give it to me straight. Is there a chance, is there any chance that you and I might be together? And she says, it's very unlikely. And he says, I mean, just tell me, like, is it, when you say that, do you mean like one in a hundred? And she says, more like one in a million. And he looks crestfallen. He looks defeated. And then this change starts to come over his face in this weird, awkward, just dumber smile comes on his face and he says, so you're telling me there's a chance. <laughs> well, he just really doesn't get it, obviously, and something along those lines is what's going on with Nebuchadnezzar. So in chapter 2 of Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar had a dream. And it scared him. It, it shook him to the core of his being as the king of Babylon, and in many ways the most powerful man in the known world at that point. And in that dream, he saw a big giant statue. And the head of that statue was made of gold, and, and then the other parts were made of silver and bronze and iron, and, and then down to the feet of iron and wood mixed together. And a big stone was cut out of a mountain, and that big stone... Uh, crushed this statue 
And then that stone grew into a mountain that covered the world. And Nebuchadnezzar couldn't find anyone to interpret his dream except for Daniel, this man from Israel, this man from Judah. And Daniel told him that dream, Nebuchadnezzar, is about this series of kingdoms that are going to come on the world and on the earth. And the, and the head of that dream is you, Nebuchadnezzar. You're the gold head. You're the, you're the greatest of these nations, of these kings, of these world leaders. But... You and all these other ones that are going to come are going to ultimately end. And there's a kingdom yet to come, a kingdom that God himself is going to bring, not built or made in any way by human hands. But that kingdom is going to be the one to come and put an end to all earthly kingdoms and grow and become the kingdom that covers everything. All peoples, all nations, all tongues will serve and bow down to the king of that kingdom. Well, like the guy from Dumb and Dumber, Nebuchadnezzar didn't hear the part about this future kingdom that was the true kingdom, the great kingdom to come. All he heard was, you're the gold head. You're the great kingdom presently. And so he thought, so you're telling me there should, they should all be doing what I say to do. You're telling me they should all worship in the way that I think they should worship. Great idea, Daniel. I'm going to build a gold statue. 90 feet tall. Only nine feet wide. That's a strange dimensions. And I'm going to put it out in the plain. The very plain where the Tower of Babel seems to have been built. That seems to be a good spot for it. I'm going to put it out there and I'm going to tell everybody they need to come out there. We're going to have a big giant worship service and we're going to bow down and we're going to worship this statue that I have set up. Notice how many times I said in, in reading the passage I read, Nebuchadnezzar had set it up. Nebuchadnezzar had called the people to come and worship. This is the statue that he set up. Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar. That's intentional to give you the impression that he just doesn't get it even though he had been shown so plainly. What he's living and displaying is a kingly foolishness, a prideful foolishness. And you don't have to be a literal king to display such foolishness. The Bible makes it very clear that any and all of us are subject to that type of pride. And it seems evident in our current cultural landscape that we are all of us told to be kings and queens of our own making, certainly of our own lives, and to, in many ways, establish, if you would, a, a false worship and an idolatry of this is what I'm striving to be or I'm called to be, and, and I am bowing down only to that. It's this idol of, in many ways, what we might call self-expression. Um, in her book, Confronting Christianity, Rebecca McLaughlin talks about this. She says, not that people are any less spiritual today. They're less tied to the familiar religious institutions of tradition, of, of what we're familiar with. But they're not less spiritual. They're just as spiritual. In fact, in many ways, they would think of themselves and describe themselves as even more spiritual. Eugene Peterson picks up on this in talking about worship and prayer. 
He says this in, in one of his writings. He says, left to ourselves, we will pray to some God who speaks what we like hearing or to the part of God we manage to understand. But what is critical is that we speak to the God who has spoken to us. There's a difference between praying to an unknown God whom we hope to discover in our praying and praying to a known God who has revealed himself through Israel and through Christ and in his word who speaks our own language. In the first, we indulge our appetite for religious fulfillment. In the second, we practice obedient faith. The first might seem like a lot more fun, but the second is far more important. What is essential in prayer is not that we learn to express ourselves, but that we learn to answer God. That's so, it's so true, but it's, it's so hard to push past, and, and even within the church. How many times within the church is there this temptation to appeal to our own need for perceived need to be able to express ourselves rather than to respond in obedience to the God who has expressed himself for our salvation and for his glory? And so that's one of the common modern idols that we see lifted up, if you would, maybe not in gold per se, but it's, it's in every television show and every song and every movie. It's digital if it's not golden. But it's still this siren call from the kings of this world, if you would, and from our own hearts even, to bow down and worship at the idol of self-expression. What Nebuchadnezzar does is not merely to sin in idolatry, but then he compounds it, as we often do, uh, by inviting others, and because he's a king, in fact, demanding others to idolize with him. Again, this is pretty common. Most of us don't like to sin by ourselves. We want to engage others in our sinfulness. We want to invite them in with us in our sin. And if we have any sense of power or, or um, influence over them, we might even, to a certain extent, demand it. This is one of the complicating facts of our sinfulness. Sin loves company. That's been since the very beginning. Eve didn't just eat of the apple or whatever kind of fruit it was from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. She gave it to Adam. Genesis 3, 6 says, who was there with her? That's a whole nother issue that I won't get into today. And he ate. Because it's not enough just to disobey the Lord by yourself. Let's get others to join us in. It makes us feel a little better about ourselves. To not be alone in our sinfulness. We're called to bow down before various and sundry images by politicians and marketers and athletes and artists and entertainers. But we're also called to do this by our family and our friends and our peers, aren't we? And if we're honest, we do it to others. Usually in the church, we're more subtle about it. We're more careful about it. But let's don't forget that there's no one righteous, not even one. 
Let's don't be so quick to point the finger outside of ourselves and these walls that we don't see our own temptation in this, uh, this sin. Imagine if you would, uh, me, this has never happened, I assure you. But imagine that there was someone in the church that I was not seeing eye to eye with. Maybe they didn't like something I preached, or maybe they didn't like something about the direction of the church that I was maybe, you know, casting a vision for, leading us in, or, or who knows what. And so I come home and speak about this with my wife, Lainey, and imagine that I tell her how I am so angry, and in fact that I am, to a certain extent, plotting my revenge against this person. It'll be subtle. They won't see it coming. I'll do it in careful ways. Maybe even get like the session to vote on something to put them in their place. What if she says, that doesn't sound very Christ-like, Chad. I might be inclined to respond by saying, you too. I thought if I could trust anybody, it would be you. But clearly, even you are against me. Now, I'm sure that kind of conversation has never happened in your own marriages or your children have never come home and, and you've had to respond with gospel exhortation and they've not been offended that you didn't just completely take their side against whomever had done whatever against them. But that is one of our idols, isn't it? That we want others to affirm us even in our sin. In our current culture, another big idol is uh, the idol of individual freedom. And I don't just mean this is a new idol. This has been really since the dawn of this nation we call the United States. It's written into the very Constitution. And so no matter which side of the political aisle you're on, we champion individual freedoms. And rightly so. Don't hear... Chad Reynolds saying, like, Chad's against individual freedoms. He's not even American. No, that's not what I'm saying. But the gospel tells us, yes, individual rights are there. This is godly, biblical stuff. But those individual rights are not in and of themselves the ultimate reality. They are to be tempered by the call to love. And we all know that the call to love God, first and foremost, and others as we love ourselves, is always going to be a call that's going to bring limitations to our individual freedoms in the pursuit of those. Because if I'm going to love others well, if I'm going to love God the way He calls for with my all, then I'm not going to be able to pursue my own idea of individual freedom to the fullest. That would be idolatry. The gospel tempers that. And so it's important for us to look at these. These are just two possible idols that we see in our world and culture today. I imagine you could come up with any number in your own mind or heart right now and would encourage you to do so. But I'll move on for now to the second big point. If the first big point is this idea of a, of a kingly prideful foolishness. The second big point is that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego display for us a wisdom of faithful worship. 
If idolatry is foolish, faithful, gospel-oriented worship is wise. And that's what we see here in them. Unlike the people of Judah, which was why Israel and Judah were in exile from the get-go, unlike the people of Judah and the kings of Judah, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego aren't chasing after the other gods of the world around them. They are remaining faithful to the Lord their God, to Yahweh. They knew that he had called his people to have no other gods before them. In fact, they knew there were no other gods, period. And so they reserved their worship for the Lord alone because it is to him alone that worship is to be given as is stated in the commandments. The very first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. And the second commandment, you shall not make for yourself an idol, a graven image in the form of any created thing. And so they knew this. They also knew that God was sovereign in all things. He's sovereign over the nations. They knew about the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had had in chapter 2 because Daniel had told them about it. He had sought their assistance in prayer as he was seeking the Lord to let him know what that dream was in the first place. So they knew it's God who's sovereign, not Nebuchadnezzar, and certainly not Nebuchadnezzar's gods. So they weren't worried in that sense. And they knew that God's sovereignty was such that he was even sovereign over a big, giant, fiery furnace. That if he wanted to and willed to, he could, in fact, save them from that momentary affliction. But they didn't base their faith on whether or not he would do it. Verses 17 and 18, they tell Nebuchadnezzar, we know our God can do this. This is my summary of it. We know our God can do this. And he may indeed do it for us. But if he doesn't, then that's not going to negate our obedience to him and our continuing to give him what he is due, which is faithful worship. And so that's the promise they make. Now, I can only imagine that if word got out, I don't know how public their trial was, if you can even call it that. I don't know how public it was, but I can imagine there were other people from Judah, other people of the Jewish faith who had also been carried off into exile who heard, great, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego didn't bow down. This is going to be a problem for all of us now. Maybe they're even like rolling their eyes a little bit. Why couldn't they just do it? It doesn't mean they're actually worshiping Marduk or the gods of Babylon. Is it really that big a deal? They could just bow down, pray silently to God, and nobody is hurt. We could just all move on with our lives and no big deal. Nebuchadnezzar's going to forget about this statue in a month and we'll just go back to living like normal. Or maybe some of them said, man, if, if they would have just bowed down and lived to fight another day, then, then that might have given them an opportunity later to witness to Nebuchadnezzar. But now they can't witness to Nebuchadnezzar because they're creating this big giant issue over a little statue. Is it really worth it? And you see what they show us is it is worth it. And that God's not bound up in the way Nebuchadnezzar sees the world, and neither is he bound up in the way that others might see the world. That the price of doing business in Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon or in the 21st century United States or wherever else the Lord might put us, that the price of doing business there is not to bow down in idolatry to any false god. And that the Lord can use our faithful witness and stands to bring glory to his name and to bring the truth of the gospel to the forefront. 
And that's what he is going to do here. What they display is that what really matters is true worship, not security. And so they are trusting in the Lord their God. They're trusting that as he has promised in his word, that he is going to be with them even in the fire. That's what Isaiah 43 says. Isaiah 43 says, Now thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you, and through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned. They had passed through rivers and waters before coming out of Egypt. And now these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, pass through fire. And they're not burned. And the text goes to extraordinary lengths to let us know just how unburned they were. Have you ever built a campfire and then go inside or like out in your yard, maybe you got a fire pit or something, and you build the fire and then you go inside and maybe you like give your wife a hug or, or your children a hug? They probably will make a comment. You smell like smoke. Well, guess what the passage says about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? They didn't even smell like smoke. The level of protection that God gives them is excessive. Why did he need to keep them from smelling like smoke? To show, to make sure Nebuchadnezzar and all the people know, when I save you, I save you all the way. And when I'm with you, I'm with you all the way. And the fires of Nebuchadnezzar's furnace didn't touch those three. And here's the promise to the people who are in Christ by grace through faith. The fires of hell will not touch us, contaminate us, harm us in any way, shape, or fashion. In many ways right now, we still see the contamination of sin in our lives, but the promise to us is that by the by the blessed, gracious presence of Christ, when we're resurrected and when we're in heaven with the Lord, there won't even be the smell of the contamination of sin on you and me or any who are in Christ. Just like he wasn't touched by the contamination of death, which the psalmist affirms and, and later uh, the apostles are going to point to. Neither will we, even though we might die, yet shall we live and we'll live in such a way and in such a fullness in Christ that not even the scent of sin and death will be left on us. That's amazing, isn't it? That's the full promise of the gospel that, that what we see displayed here in Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is going to be ours in an even fuller way, an even more eternal way. And we know that that's true because we see that it's not just that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were saved from the fire, but the nature by which they were saved. Nebuchadnezzar looked into that fire and he said, I don't just see three, I see four. And the fourth one is one like a son of the gods. And I would argue 
the correction here for Nebuchadnezzar is, oh no, that, that is the Son of God. Not just one like a son of the gods. That is the Son of God. I think it's the pre-incarnate Christ. And many evangelical commentators would hold as much, would agree with that. In fact, it's not my idea. I got it from them. Newsflash, most of us as preachers get our good tidbits like that from smarter men than us. Certainly the case for me. He looks in and sees Jesus walking with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Jesus is walking with us. That's what we believe. That's what the New Testament tells us. That's what the gospel says. Christ's parting promise to his disciples was a commission first, go and make disciples of all nations. And then he says, and know and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Well, how is he with us? Well, he was with us in his incarnation and in his death and his resurrection. And now by his ascension, he's for us at the right hand of God, but he's with us by the Spirit of God. Whereby, as Romans chapter 8 tells us, we are made the sons and daughters of God. So when the world looks at us, they see the Son of God walking with us by the Spirit. But more than that, they don't just see Chad Reynolds a Joe Blow dude walking with Jesus by the Spirit. They see Chad Reynolds, an adopted son of God, walking with the only begotten son of God. And when they see you, they see a son or daughter of God, if you are indeed Christ, and they see Christ with you. And so when, when the world sees us going through the various trials, the fiery furnaces, if you would, of, of death, of various hardships, of struggles in this life, maybe even of persecution directly because of the faith. When they see us walking faithfully in the midst of those, by the grace of Christ, not in our own strength, but by the grace of Christ, then they see Jesus. And by God's grace, perhaps they'll come to a place like Nebuchadnezzar did, where they say, there's something different about these people. There is something profoundly different about them. And whether or not they come to a place of pronouncing that nobody else should speak ill of our God or not, they'll have the witness of the gospel shown to them. And even better than a leader or someone in power honoring our worship would be if they themselves began to worship. Nebuchadnezzar doesn't do that really at the end of chapter 3, but newsflash and a bit of a spoiler alert if you haven't read it before, by the end of chapter 4, he does. He seems to come to faith. And that's how God works in and through us. When we're willing by grace and through faith in him to endure fiery trials, he can use us to draw others to faith and faithfulness and to give glory to him in their own praise. And so I want to encourage you to that end uh, today and in the days ahead. To trust in Jesus, the one who is with you. Just as he was with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, he'll be with you and is with you as well by the Spirit. 
Let's pray. Father, we praise you. We thank you for this good word. We pray that it gives us comfort and strength for today, but also bright hope for tomorrow. Whatever trials may come in the here and now that like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, we would know they have no ultimate say over us, no ultimate end upon us. But your son Jesus is the final word on our behalf, and he sits at your right hand and says, this one is mine, that one is mine. May we exult in that and praise you and stand firm in the good news of the gospel that is ours in Christ Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen.